Hear God's word from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you so much, Ben. And if you keep the Bible open or the passage in the worship folder, let me add my greeting to freshmen uh, and just say how wonderful it is. We're a church that just loves college students, and uh, we're glad you're here, and we hope that you'll find this to be a home away from home. Let me tell you about my summer. Uh, For the uh, regular college church people, you will be aware that this is my first Sunday back in the pulpit for a couple of months. I've been um, doing nothing all summer, and, um, and thank you for paying me for doing nothing. I do appreciate it very much. Actually, I've been doing some writing. Uh, there's a uh, Connections article about that, and I've written a couple of uh, manuscripts. One is to a publisher, another is not quite ready, and uh, there's a new book of mine that is actually on John's Gospel. It's a commentary, the first volume and it's available today if you like that. It might help as we go through um, studying uh, John's gospel. Over the summer, that all sounds very earnest and hardworking, but I did have some fun too. Is that okay? Over the summer, I also watched a couple of movies. I checked online, and they're both PG-13, so I may mention them in church. Uh, The first movie I watched was a superhero movie. I must confess, I'm not a great fan of superhero movies, and I know that will alienate many of you, but there you go. But this one I watched was called Spider-Man Homecoming, is that right? Anyone watch that? No one! (laughs) It's the same at the 8 o'clock. I thought, surely at 9.30 there would be a few, but anyway. I enjoyed that, and apparently... I'm among a small minority. (laughs) The other movie I watch, which I want to use to introduce uh, the sermon, is uh, Dunkirk. Anyone see that? Yeah, there we go. Now we're connecting. Uh, Dunkirk 
it's just an extraordinary movie. And um, it's, I, I'm not sure whether I want to watch it again. It was pretty intense, but not in a gratuitous way. But what was extraordinary about it, and you know, it's the story of what happened at Dunkirk at the beginning of the Second World War when a whole um, hundreds of thousands of troops were stranded on the beach of Dunkirk looking like they're about to be eliminated. And there was no real way to get them off in time, but for ex absolutely unexpected series of events. Uh, they were rescued, and a lot of it came about through this flotilla of small boats that went across the channel and bit by bit rescued them. Extraordinary story, and it's a great movie. Now, when you come to John's Gospel, a lot of people get a little thrown by it because it has these big terms, light, life, truth. And they sound philosophical and heavy, but really what's going on is John is painting with broad brushstrokes a picture, a movie, if you like, of the life of Jesus in such a way that the experience of reading the book and of looking at this book together as uh, we study it together, the experience is a bit like going to a movie like Dunkirk. You don't remember every detail. You don't remember every single aspect of the history of Dunkirk, but you come out feeling as if something has changed. I came away from Dunkirk thinking life is a lot more important than perhaps I'd considered. And that theme of life is right at the heart of John's gospel. John wrote this book so that you might believe in the name of Jesus and that by believing in Him, you might have one of these big words, life. Now, what does he mean by life? By life, he means a lot more than simply life after death. He means life now. He means what Jesus called fullness of life or abundant life, or extraordinary life, or prodigious life, or remarkable life. I wonder whether that's the kind of life you have. I'm not asking, are you a Christian? What I'm asking is, do you have this prodigious life, this remarkable life, this extraordinary life, this fullness of life. Jesus uh, described it as uh, being like springs of living water welling up within you. It's a wonderful image that when you have this life, you no more um, are thirsty. Look at it like this. Imagine that I had a bucket of water on stage about this big. And in that bucket of water, there was water, otherwise known as water. <laughs> Just as a little side note, I've completely given up trying to say, ask for water in restaurants. There's no point. I just say water, and then it turns up. <laughs> so let's roll that back, a bucket of water. And in this bucket, there is, as I say, water. And 
there it is. And so I come up the steps, and it's a long time since I've been preaching, and I've forgotten how, you know, how sort of steep those steps are. And I trip a little bit, and some water spills out on the stage. And, and then, you know, one of the choir members isn't happy with the sermon, so comes up, gives me a good shove in the back because I get something wrong, you know. And uh, I'm joking, by the way. They, they love the sermon. But, you know, and, and the water, all of it spills out on the, this beautiful, on this platform. And I can show you the bucket, and now it's empty. For a lot of us, our experience of being a Christian is a bit like that. Yeah, we have some of this sort of new life thing, perhaps, maybe, we think. But then uh, we have a relational problem, or we have um, some friction at home, or we have um, a sickness, or uh, uh, there's some trauma, or reading the news, and we, we come across all this, uh, the, the, the terror in Barcelona, or the hideous evil of racism in our country today, and, and, and the water inside, as it were, us just spills out, and we've got nothing left, and we just, we just feel devastated, and there's nothing we can do, and we can hardly get out of bed, and... Now imagine instead I have on the platform a faucet, a tap, and I just turn it on and water just pours out all over this platform. It just runs and runs and runs and the maintenance people are now really, really upset. It's just running everywhere. As long as there is water in Wheaton, it will keep on running. As long as there is life in Jesus, that spring of living water well up within you, that's life. That's what's on offer this morning. We say, well, everyone's alive. Well, every person you have ever met exists. Few are truly alive. There is a sense in which we live among the walking dead. There's a zombie apocalypse all around us. But then there is this life. Well, John wrote his book so that you find life. Do you want it? This book is for you. This morning, we're looking at John's introduction to his book. It's known to scholars as John's prologue. Uh, John's book as a whole is simply structured around an introduction, a conclusion, a book of signs, and then a book of glory. That's the structure of the book. The reason why we're doing the introduction somewhat fast this morning, um, verses 1 through to 18, is because it introduces the book. And I, I've preached it slower at other uh, seasons of life, perhaps around Christmas, that kind of thing, uh, other seasons of the church's life. But this morning we're doing it fast because we're introducing the book of John, and we're going to go through the book of John, and we went through it slowly we would, in a sense, have preached the whole book of John by going through it. So we're going to go through it a little bit fast. Uh, John's uh, introduction is not, though, simply introducing all the things that John will say later. It is also making a specific claim for how we can find this life. How? And as I hope to show, John is saying that you know God through Jesus and you know Jesus through the Bible. So the way to experience this life is through reading, experiencing, and taking in the Word. This, I think, in church life 
is perhaps the most relevant thing. We are a church that loves the Bible. We are not a church that loves the Bible because we like intellectual things. We're not a church that loves the Bible because we like books. We're not a church that loves the Bible because we're old-fashioned, and in days of yore, they used to love the Bible, so we still do. We are a church that loves the Bible because you find life through Jesus, and you find Jesus through the Bible. Let me illustrate that for you in this way. Uh, Say... Uh, you have been in email correspondence with um, a long-lost uncle, right? Say you've got a long-lost uncle, okay? And they don't live in Idaho. They live somewhere far away, okay? I guess Idaho is kind of far away. I don't know. Idaho, I don't know. It rhymes. Assonance, maybe, but not rhyming. Anyway, um, so you've got your long-lost uncle, You've been in email correspondence with this long-lost uncle, and you and your brother or your sister decide that it's time to meet uh, the uncle, and uh, you arrange, therefore, he's in Chicago, and uh, you're going to meet at Union Station. And so you go downtown, but you, you, you don't know what he looks like. You've never seen him. You've never even seen a picture of him, and so he emails you a picture of what he looks like today. So you get out on the uh, platform at Union Station, and uh, you know what it's like down there. If you haven't been downtown, it's busy, and a lot of people, and so you're scanning around thinking, well, who who is this guy? Where is he? I've come here to find him. Where is he? Well, you remember then that he sent you a picture on your your phone. So you get out your phone, and uh, you, you open it up, and you put up the picture, and then you start scanning around, looking at the picture, looking at the crowd, and then you see him. Ah! That's him. John is saying that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, so that those who truly worship God, when they come encounter Jesus through the Bible, when they see Jesus, will say, Ah, that's him. That's the one I'm worshiping. That's him. This is, of course, a massive claim. We worship or we worship Jesus, the God of the universe. Not some kind of tribal deity, but the God of all glory, immensity. That's him. And so we come to the introduction. It's structured around two sort of interwoven themes. First, the word, verses 1 to 5, and then... 10 to 14. You'll find this often with John. He sort of tangles themes together. So first the word, verses 1 to 5, and then 10 to 14. And then second, the witness, verses 6 to 9, and verses 14 to 18. The point is, the word, verse 1, became flesh, verse 14. So the witness, John the Baptist, John the author of the gospel, the the other apostles, saw the word. The word became flesh, the witness saw the word, and we have the witness of the word became flesh in front of us now that we might have life, abundant life, prodigious life, extraordinary life in Him. So the word first, profound in its simplicity and yet simple in its profundity. Verse 1, in the beginning was the word. The phrase in the beginning 
simply echoes, as we found out in the service already this morning, so brilliantly tied together, simply echoes the first sentence of Genesis at the start of the Bible. So Jesus is not this minor deity or tribal God. And the Jesus era did not begin with Jesus of Nazareth. You ever thought about that? He is eternal. He is the Logos. This word spoke everything into existence. Psalm 33, verse 6, one among many possible quotations. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So when God said, let there be light, the word that said it was the word that became flesh. And the word was with God. And this is so carefully expressed. John is guarding against an understanding that Jesus only seemed to be God or was only partially God. The word was with God. So to protect anyone as the heretic Arius mistakenly did from thinking the word was created, John says the word was with God. As Calvin put it, that means that if the phrase in the beginning suggests that the word began in time, which it doesn't, but if it could, then because the word was also with God, it would mean that God also began in time. But no, the word was with God, so eternal. And the word was God. Uh, You may know that... um, Jehovah's Witnesses think that because there is no definite article the before God in this sentence, it means the word was a God. Uh, This is mistaken for so many reasons, I don't have time to mention them all, but for instance, the same phrase in verse 49 is rightly translated, you are the king of Israel, not you are a king of Israel. Um, In Greek, the way John writes this sentence is the exactly correct way to put it. If you want to emphasize that Jesus was fully God and yet also not subsumed in the same God, that there is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Martin Luther even suggested the phrase should be translated, and God was the Word. Verses 2 and 3 are not just repeating, they're emphasizing. And then verse 4, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. The life here is the source of all life, animal, vegetable, physical, spiritual. Now, let's think about this in terms of apologetics. The answer to how something can come from nothing That's that's the great challenge of every non-theistic interpretation of the universe. At some point, something has to come from nothing. The answer to how something can come from nothing is that in the beginning was the Word. There is a logical underpinning to all of reality that finds its explanation in God Himself. There is a reason. I was having a conversation with someone quite recently about this, trying to explain that, you know, surely there's a, there's a logos, there's a reason, there's a rationale to the universe. How do you explain this if you think that matter is all there is? His explanation was that humans are the kind of animals that have developed the tendency to interpret life with a 
leaning towards finding a rationale, and therefore they look for patterns and reason even if there is not one. In other words, you come up with a very sophisticated reason for there to be no reason. But no, in the beginning was the Logos. That's the answer to how something can come from nothing. The answer to how there is life from non-life, actual life from non-life, is found that in this word is the source of all life. In him was life. But of course, this life is not only physical, it's also spiritual. It's found in our human conscience, in creation, and ultimately shining in Christ by his work in our hearts through his spirit, the faucet, the spring of living water is pouring through us. This is the life in abundance that Jesus has come to give you, and that John is writing this book that you might have. And then switching his big picture language now, the light shines in the darkness, verse 5, the darkness of evil and opposition to God, but the darkness has not overcome it. I get frustrated sometimes by all the statistics that people throw around of what's happening in church attendance, how young people are not going to church anymore and all this kind of thing. It's not been my experience. My experience is that the generation that is so-called young today, and by the way, I still think of myself as young, which should make some of you laugh and others agree, depending on your age, Actually, what they're looking for is not lack of substance, but truth and reality, and some statistics are beginning to bear this out. There was a new survey done in 2017 in my home country, United Kingdom, that showed that actually uh, from 11 to 18-year-olds, now attendance was at 21%, whereas 2006 it had been 6%. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it is an encouraging statistic. We have so much bad news today with the evil of racism, with global terror. It is easy for us as Christians to have that logged in our minds so that we end up being depressed people, down people, rather than exuberant, joyful people. The light is shining in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. We need to recount the light. John, the author of this gospel, discipled personally many people. One of the most famous of his disciples is a man called Polycarp. Polycarp is famous for an extraordinary um, martyrdom. Polycarp also discipled many people. One of them was the famous Irenaeus. He lived and worked in southern France. Irenaeus discipled many people. One of them was the famous Ambrose, the great preacher of Rome. Ambrose discipled through his writings, Augustine. Psalm 118 kept in Irenaeus to Ambrose, Ambrose to Augustine. Ambrose's preaching was instrumental in converting the great Augustine of Hippo. Augustine, now we've got to skip around in history, but nonetheless it's true, Augustine was hugely influential on 
much later, John Calvin, Martin Luther, who went back to the Bible and were guided by doing so, looking at the great early Christian leaders like Chrysostom and Augustine. You've got Polycarp, Irenaeus, Ambrose, Augustine, John Calvin. John Calvin was influential on the Puritans. The Puritans set up a colony in New England to call people back to the Bible. The New Englanders did so. And then there was a great awakening with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And there was a second great awakening with Jonathan Blanchard, and Jonathan Blanchard was the founder of College Church, and here we are, and here we are, and the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, and it will not overcome it. And then verses 6 and 9 introduce for us John, this witness to Jesus. My brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to be a witness for Jesus. There is no more elevated position than being a witness to Jesus in the same way that a person who stands on a mountain is higher than the one who sits on a chair in the valley. Cottage Church, would we this fall, can't believe I'm calling August fall, but nonetheless, would we as we move now into the fall make a fresh commitment to be a witness to the light? To each morning wake up and think, who can I tell about Jesus? How can I act in such a way that witnesses to this life? He came to his own, his own did not receive him. Verse 11, Jesus was rejected. Jesus' followers will be rejected from time to time. Some did, of course, receive him, like John, the author of the gospel. And those who did receive him, verse 12, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now watch this. Born not of blood, verse 13. That is not genetically, nor of the will of flesh or the will of man. That is emphasizing the point. Not by human will in any respect, but of God. Not of blood. I hardly can believe that I need to say this, but having watched current media and news over the last couple of weeks, I'm going to say it. We Christians are not people born of blood. We are people born of God. The Word became flesh. Not Caucasian, by the way, a Middle Eastern Jew. You say, if it's all about God and what He does, and I want this life, how do I get it? Well, John tells us, he says, believe in Him. You say, well, if it's Him that's doing it, what difference would it make if I believe in Him? Wrong thinking. Let me explain it like this. Sometimes it's said in Chicago there are only two seasons, winter and construction. <laughs> say it's construction season, you want to fix something. And say it's the mayor of Wheaton who decides whether it gets fixed. What do you do? Well, there's nothing I can do. It's the mayor's decision. I, I, I don't have anything to do with it. Or do you write him a letter? Or make a phone call? 
or speak to someone who knows him, or write him a letter, or make a phone call. God makes the decision, and that means you must believe in him. It means you must call out to him. It means you must ask him, you want this life? It's not going to come from me. In your heart, you can say, Lord, I want this abundant life. I want this extraordinary life. Would you, would you give it to me? And if you cry out to him, he promises he would. This fullness of life, which you will never, of which you will never grow tired and is unquenchable. The word, verse 14, became flesh. And we, the witness, John the Apostle, real Christians, the other apostles, real Christians in a secondary sense who are illumined by the Spirit of Jesus, we who witness have seen His glory. From His fullness, verse 16, we've all received grace upon grace, the grace that is the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments begin, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. All the Old Testament is a story of God's rescue, His grace. The grace that is the Old Testament, the grace that is in the New Testament, more and more grace for those who believe. The law from Moses, itself graceful, grace and truth through Jesus. Grace upon grace, from His fullness, now we receive. No one has ever seen God, not any other place or time, but now uniquely and only in the Word made flesh, the God-man Jesus has been made known. I, oh yeah, that, that's Him. This is Him. I've encountered Him. Lord, I've met you through your Word. The Word, the witness, and we have the witness of that Word become flesh, Jesus in front of us, that we might have life in Him now. <clears throat> the story goes that Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, was one time on a plane and the, uh, the cabin crew came up to him because Muhammad Ali didn't have his seatbelt on and they wanted him to put his seatbelt on and uh, he refused. No, I'm not going to do that. And so they kept on coming to him and saying, sir, could you please put your seatbelt on? He kept on refusing. Eventually, Muhammad Ali looked at them and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which one of the cabin crew responded, yes, sir, but Superman don't need no plane either. Would you this morning humble yourself to receive this life? If you want it, you may find it in Him, and you discover Him through this. I started uh, the sermon with a, a little recap of the movie Dunkirk. So it's a great movie, but it left out one critically significant spiritual detail. When the call went out for all those little ships to go and rescue those soldiers off the beaches of Dunkirk, another call went out. Not from Churchill, from the churches. across the country, 
every church was packed with people praying. And I am sure that that was the real miracle of Dunkirk. Would you this morning ask God through Jesus, through His Word, to give you this abundant, extraordinary fullness of life? Let's pray together. Lord, would you cause springs of living water to well up within us? Would you give us this life that is in Him, now in us? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.